Hello, this is Peter Jonathan Robertson with the 74th edition of the PJ Archive. It's an interview I did with the much-loved English singer and actor Alvin Stardust, who was born Bernard Jewry and first experienced success in the 1960s under the name Shane Fenton. Sadly, Alvin died in 2014, at the age of 72. This interview took place in 2000, when he and his third wife, actress and singer Julie Payton, were relaxing at Champney's Forest Mere Health Spa in Hampshire. I began by asking Alvin what he was up to work-wise. Well, the last four years has been completely wild. It's been hectic. I've done musicals, plays. Um, I've done three European tours. The last one was Susie Quattro this year. Yeah, we had a complete massive sell-out tour. It was brilliant. And I, I just decided, ever, you know, we, we could have been working right through Christmas and, and New Year. Obviously, this year, New Year's Eve would have been a, 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 a coup. Uh, money-wise, but I just thought there's more important things than money at the moment. You know, I'm tired now. I could do with a break. Um, So we've really taken time out for the next couple of months, um, all all through Christmas and New Year, to be at home with family and friends. We've got a big kind of street party that we've organised in in the village hall. Um, There's going to be about, I suppose, about 80 of us, but just very close family and friends. And then um, in January, I'm working with a producer called Stuart Barber, and uh, we, we're going to go into start recording an album. I've not recorded for about ten years, I suppose. It got to the point where Radio 1 weren't playing anything. Yeah. Um, and now suddenly Radio 2 and their gold stations mm. are so important. They're putting yeah. albums in the charts. Yeah. And I just thought, well, I, like every decade, I seem to be managed to to come back again with another album. And so I thought maybe this year could you know next year could be the the time to have another crack you know so so i'm going in the studio to record for the first time in 10 years um and i'm very excited about that so i'm going to block that in for two or three months and then from about um summer next year our diary's pretty full we're already talking about another tour um, so I'm re- really, really busy. And that will be a tour on your own or with Susie Cottrell? Or like no, it, it's we do these kind of package tours, which is the way I started. You know, when yeah. the first the first tours I ever did were back in '61 yeah. with people like um, I toured with like the Beatles, Billy Fury, Eddie Cochran, Gene Vincent. You know, it, there were package tours yeah. all the time. You know, and and uh, it's almost gone back to the way it was when I was a teenager. Are you doing any more musicals or anything like that? I've been offered a couple, but the parts I really like are the, the kind of um, the weird and twisted characters. <clears throat> you know, I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd love to play um, uh, someone like Sweeney Todd, and I've been offered a couple of things that are leaning that way, but I, I, I try not to do anything unless it really sits right. And sometimes it's... I think the reason I've kept going so long in the business is because it's not the work I've taken, it's the work we've turned down. Well, about ten years ago, I decided to branch out and have a go at plays and musicals because I've always fancied being an actor. I mean, I'd love to be in a cowboy film or something, you know. Um, I've probably got the face and the watch thing to to get away with it now. I thought if I don't do it, if I don't have a go at acting, um, it's going to be too late. So I think I timed it dead right. So ten years ago, I started, got a an agent called Sue James who, who was looking after lots of big West End stars and she's got me into acting and Bill Kenwright gave me my first 
like two-handed play at the King's Head in Great. Islington. So I, again, it was really nice to meet these people and mm-hmm. get the break. And then I worked with Tim and Andrew mm-hmm. in a musical called Cricket that yep. they'd written, yep. uh, which again was just, how can you be that lucky, you know? And I keep getting bits and pieces that come along, which I like I like to do that. And I'm fired up now because I'm, I have the feel to maybe start mm. do some more recording. You were in Hollyoaks a few years ago, and I half expect you to turn up in the Grimleys with Noddy Holder. I'm in the Grimleys. Oh, you are? I bet I'm in the new series, yeah. Well, we've just finished filming the new right. series, which yeah. comes out in uh, January, yeah, yeah. and uh, I've become a regular on there. It's good. Oh, great. It's very Which good. character do you play on that, then? Well, I'm the, I am Alvin. Oh, I see. Right. And it's like, it's a bizarre situation where Noddy and I kind of be, are kind of friendly and we talk about the fact that we used to be in a band. Uh, together. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, uh, aren't we lucky that we, you know, that we decided to, to get out of that stupid yeah. industry, you know, and yeah. stop being rock stars, you know, yeah. kind of thing. <laughs> Did he and get it, you the part in that series? No, in fact, I was offered the part that he's got. Oh, right. And I couldn't do it. And I think he was, I mean, to be honest, I think Noddy was just holding out for more money. Mm-hmm. And then Noddy did it, and, and the guys, I mean, it's such a fun That's great. series. It's quite a lot as it is, isn't it? Yeah, I've been very lucky. I mean, I've been sort of doing this since 61 was the mm. first record deal I got. It was with EMI, and uh, my first producer was George Martin. I just landed on my feet, you know. Mm. And ever since then, I just kind of keep dropping on good producers, you know, nice little deals with record companies that keep me ticking over. You know, sometimes I just I have to pinch myself to believe it's still going on because, you know, I've never kind of rated myself as a singer or a, anything like that, but I just love being in a band mm. and I love the music, you know, whatever it is, you know. How inspired are you by Cliff Richard at the moment? I mean, you're still going strong and he's going extremely strong too. Things have changed so drastically over the past kind of five years. Up until then, the industry was very similar to, the, to what it's always been. Um, it's always difficult, you know, to, to get a new deal or to make your way early on as a, young, as a youngster in the business. And you have a run of so many years. But there are always the stalwarts, like the Rod Stewarts and the Elton Johns and the Cliff Richards and the, you know, those kind of people that keep going because of the standard of the music that they're doing. And it's all... Right from the word go, it's been kind of adult-orientated music. And so it, it crosses over as their audiences go grow older. The music doesn't have to change because it's always been right from the word go. But the pop side of things, which is slightly more fun and jokey, like the glam stuff, for mm-hmm. instance, usually have a, has a short run because it's, it's set in an era. But this, this last couple of years, all that's been blown out of the water. You've got people like ABBA... Mm. I mean, are so popular now. They're absolutely massive worldwide. Mm. I mean, the Beatles have come have come back mm. in such a strong way, mm. and um, people like George Michael, who, who could have easily just disappeared, is coming back with like monster albums. The standards of the tracks are so good. And instead of everyone relying on one radio station to plug music, we've now got loads of television stations and loads of radio stations, and they all do their own programming. So you can market things. I mean, albums are getting put in the charts now, getting to number one without getting played on Radio 1 or Radio 2. They're just sold in supermarkets. So how did you feel when Cliff got to number one now through not being played on the radio? I just thought it was typical of um, the way some people in the industry 
and disappearing up their own backsides. You know, they they, they, they think they're so important. Mm. You ever imagine you'd still be doing it now? Well, I suppose really about 1969. I thought that was great while it lasted. Mm. You know, and then in 1973, I took off worldwide. Yeah, yeah. It was massive. Yeah. And then I had a run till about 1979, and I stopped. I decided to pull out. Again, I thought, well, that was fun while it lasted. And then in 1981, I t- signed with Stiff Records. Mm. I took off again. Mm. And then about during the mid-80s, I, um, I thought, well, it's got to cool down a bit now. And then I signed with Christmas Records mm. and took off again. And then the 90s came, and I thought, at my age now, you've got to own up. You know, I'm not Elton John. You know, I'm not Rod Stewart. And... Um, I've had a, made a few pop records and done okay. Perhaps you should start thinking about hanging up the spurs, you know. And uh, are you thinking about that? No, I mean, it just I can't get, I can't start working, you know. Is if that people keep, you keep being offered it, yeah, I mean, if, we, if you weren't being offered it, do you think you? But I'd probably go into production or to management. I think yeah. I don't, I couldn't keep out of the business, and I'd, I'd have to find a local pub where they had a, a you know, a good little band that we could go and jam with every mm. occasion because. I mean, that's. A, I, I'd love to see something like that, you know, as a as a kind of a regular TV thing, where they, were, they had like a small live band, and every night, I don't know, maybe midnight or something, they just got people to drop in. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and just jam. I think it'd be really interesting for people to see people in their real when they're relaxed and just singing any old songs, you know, with a with a good band. You're a survivor in every sense because you haven't fallen victim to uh, the excesses of rock and roll like a lot of your colleagues did. And why why is that? How have you survived that way? More by luck than judgment, really, you know. I mean, I, I keep seeing people from my era, my, or various areas mm. that I've been through. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas at one time it used to be like, you know, a bottle of tequila at mm. five o'clock during the sound check. And then another one before you went on stage, and then three or four afterwards. This was you. Well, all of I think we all were like that, you know. Mm. Um, suddenly everyone's drinking water, you know, like four four liters of water a day, and working out every mm. you know four times a week. Mm. It gets to the point where you just realise that, you know, you can't be up till four o'clock in the morning, and then get up at nine o'clock and drive two hundred miles mm. or fly somewhere and and do a show the next night. You might be able to get away with it for two nights, but not for long. And even the even the young new set um, that is in at the moment or will be in mm. you know next week they're all very conscious mm. and I'm sure some of them are overindulging but they're all very conscious of um, fitness and were you ever in danger of falling victim oh yeah yeah I mean I mean I, I mean I, I grew up through the 60s yeah. I mean I started my idols were people like Stephen Queen and Elvis and Eddie Cochran and yeah. Chuck Berry and all those kind of people and they were all into that in, went through the sixties. Mm. They all went through the drugs and the, the rock and roll and and drink and stuff, which we all did. You couldn't be in the industry unless you would, you know, you were touched by that. And in the seventies, it didn't change a lot. I mean, they all. It, the funny thing is, looking back over all the different decades that I've been involved with, each time, each decade, seems to think that they're the first people to do it, and it, they're just still copying what was going on. Mm. I mean, people still talk. If you talk about to a young group now about, you know, what's um, what's wild or, you know, over the top, mm. they always talk about throwing a toilet out of a, a hotel room, which I think the Stones did in 1963 or something, you know. It was like, and they still think it's new. That's rock and roll, you know, you've got to get, drink too much, take, take some drugs and throw a toilet out the window. Mm. 
So did you always have a good balance, though? You always knew when to stop and how far to go? Probably not. I probably did go too far, you know, quite a few times, but I think the thing that saved me in the end and kept me kind of a bit sane was my I had some mates, good mates around me, who told me I was being a prat. I think it was as simple as that, really. Whereas some people don't... I think some people don't have those kind of friends around. They're sucking up to them too much and they're, they're perhaps too frightened to lose their jobs. May I ask you about Gary Glitter, how you feel about his demise? I think it's appalling, the whole situation. I think it's bad for the industry. It's bad for the reputation of young people coming into the industry who are trying to make it. But actually, I think that's not quite right. It could be bad, but I think... It's fairly obvious that he is a one-off, and I think it's just sad. We met odd times in a television studio in, in, in a corridor. I never became really friendly with him. I think he was his own kind of person. I think he had his own circle of friends. And the thing is, when you during the seventies, which was his main period, I was touring, doing my shows, and Slade were doing their shows, Sweet were doing their shows. We never really worked together. We passed in a studio, but and then in the eighties, when I went with um, Stiff Records, it was Madden at the time of Madness and Elvis Costello and all them. Gary was kind of gone out of fashion then for a bit, and then in the late eighties, I went with with Chrysalis, and we were with Spandau and Ultravox and Blondie and Huey Lewis and all that that crowd were in the same record company. Again, it was a different world, and so I, I never really during the seventies, I never really got to know many of the the seventies crowd. It's always said that you called yourself Alvin Starvis because he was called Gary Glitter. No, not at all. I, I actually it was called Alvin Starvis because it, originally I was going to be called Elvin because of Elvis. Mm-hmm. I was going to be called Elvin Star and Star because of Ringo Star. Mm-hmm. And then we had a, a press lady who was looking after the the promotion for the record label, which was so it was such a small label. Mm-hmm. It was um, Magnet Records, and it was started by Michael Levy, who is now Lord Levy, mm-hmm. and does all the promotion for the Labour Party and that was fundraising I think. Mark Boland, do you have any memories of him? Mark was one of my best mates and our birthdays were on, similar, on the same day there were two musical experiences that I value more than anything else. There was a, a, a Sunday concert that I did back in the early 60s 61, 62 I was singing on stage with Gene Vincent with Eddie Cochran playing guitar and that was just a dream. It was a schoolboy's dream that just came true, and it was fantastic. And the other one was when I was at the Rainbow Theatre, and it was the last night of a European tour we'd done in 74, I think it was. And uh, I looked in the wings, and Mark was stood in the wings, punching the air with his fist, saying, go on, sunshine, you know. And then he, it came to the guitar solo about two-thirds of the way through, and Mark was always like a schoolboy. He never grew up. He was just fantastic um he was always excited with everything that happened and next thing i know he walked on stage while the audience went absolutely berserk and he took the guitar borrowed a guitar off the guitarist and took the solo in the song it was some 12 bar like johnny b good or something and he took this solo and we both ended up singing around the mic together and it was just absolutely brilliant in front of a live audience it was just fantastic and they, they're, they're two memories that I... I mean, I've got loads of memories from the business, but those two are a bit special. I think Mark was a bit of a special person. Do you remember how you heard he died and how you felt? Yes, I got a phone call from a, a friend of ours, 
who knew us both, and I went to the hospital to see his wife. It was too late to see Mark, but I saw her. I visited her for quite a while afterwards, and then she moved over to the States, and I saw her recently when she came over with her son. Oh, and a lot of your contemporaries, particularly from the 70s, were ripped off big time by their managers and so on. Did you go through all that? No, I did all right. I, I, I was pretty lucky, and I kind of t- took care of things because of my manager's advice financially and everything. I mean, the only time we really lost out, I think, was when um, we were stiff records and they went into into bankruptcy. And, and But we fortunately, about a month before they went went up or down, whichever way you looked at it, we just got our main main royalty payment. So, I mean, we'd lost a bit, you know, maybe, you know, 60 or £70,000 or something, but not, you know, the main bulk of the stuff. We'd got all that. So I think a lot of people imagine the 70s made you a multi-millionaire, did it? Well, yeah, in a way. I mean, I think it's the. Uh, I think everything's relative. You know, um, we were selling singles and albums. I mean, the singles were selling like in the UK. Cuckoo mm. sold a million and a quarter. Mm-hmm. Jealous Mind, and that didn't even go to number one. That went to number two. Jealous Mind went to number one in the UK. Cuckoo went to number one all, uh, in all the territories around the world. So did Jealous Mind. So did you, you, you. But the only number one we had in the UK was Cuckoo. But we were selling like a million uh, singles in territories all around the world, apart from the albums. I did spend a lot of money, which I think we all did, but then, fortunately, about late in the late 70s, I met my current manager, Roy Massey, and he just said, stop, you know. Yeah, he said, stop, if this is all going to disappear. No, I used to do things like... Um, Concord started doing these day flights out to the pyramids and things like that. And I'd get, like, ten friends and say, well, I've got out to the pyramids, and it was two grand a shot or something, you know, in the 70s, which is quite expensive. In, in those days, by today's things, it was it would be... So to blow 20 grand on a on a day trip with some friends was a bit stupid, but but it was fun. And 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 I've, we did it. You know, I mean, Ju- Julie and I now, we've been together for, like, 12 years. It's my longest relationship. And we... We are extravagant, but we. Well, I was just going to say we're making money, and we we like to share it with our friends and you know and do things that we can have fun with you know. So we don't skimp. It's just that we. Um, I think we're a bit more careful. What does she call you? Because you've been Bernard, you've been Shane, you've been Alvin. <laughs> well, she calls me. She's only ever known me as Alvin. Right. I mean, I've been Alvin now for, since 1973, so that's, what, 27 years? Does anyone still call you Bernard? My mum. All oh, right. Just occasionally, just occasionally. Otherwise she calls you Alvin, does she? Oh, well, yeah. Does anyone call you Shane still? Not really. I mean, I get the odd person come up that was kind of around in the, you know... That missed the, the fans from the 60s. On drugs or something. Well, the odd thing is, like, if, the, if you were a teenager in the 60s, um, you'll probably remember Shane Fenton. And then you'll know about Alvin Stiles, but Shane Fenton will be the most important thing. And if you're a teenager in the 70s, people come up to me and say, you can't beat the 70s glam with Slade and Sweet and all that, you know. But if you're a teenager in the 80s, they'll come up and they'll say, oh, pretend was great, you know, and when you were with Stiff and all that. And, and then if, if you're a teenager kind of later 80s, the people come up and say, oh, I feel like Buddy Holly, I won't run away, you know, and all that, with, with Spandau and all that on, on Chrysalis. And, and they'll talk about whenever they were teenagers. Having all these names giving you an identity crisis. The only thing that gave me an identity crisis when, when Michael Crawford was coming out of Phantom, I was asked to go up 
to be yeah. seen for Fanton. We went up and one of the people from the... I mean, I've known Andrew and Tim asked me to do Pharaoh mm-hmm. in Joseph when it first... Really good, yeah. in the early days of... Because Tim did it himself, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was at the Albury Theatre, mm-hmm. first run. Yeah. The first takeover, they said, did I want to play Pharaoh? And uh, it was... In fact, I remember when it was. It was in 1973. And I went to see them and they said, great, really nice, but you, we want slightly harder image. And in, two months later... Alvin's daughter surfaced and, mm-hmm. and went straight to number one with Cook Chew. Yeah, and it was too late then. Yeah. And then I saw Tim a couple of months later at some function. And he said to me, don't forget any time you fancy having a go at a pharaoh. And I said, it's a bit late now, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> but um, when we, I went up for the phantom thing and they were just really, they were so nice. And uh, I, I think I, I would have needed six months voice training to be able to mm-hmm. do it. But yeah. one of the management said, like, I, I'm not quite sure that the name Alvin Stardust is is right for the theatre. Perhaps you should find another name. So I was thinking Lawrence Gilgood or something like that, you know. But um, it did have to be something. I, I just thought, no, I've, I've been too long Alvin Stardust now, you know. So and have you actually t- changed your name by deep pole? No, you don't have to nowadays. You just, right. just assume a name, don't right. you? I mean, I assume a character and that's... Right. There seems to be great discrepancies of what your age is in all the different articles. It's a different age. So what is your real age? 55. Right. 1944, 27th right. September. But... Um, People sometimes get bogged down and, and mm. press agents are, are worried that you might be offended about your age, so they kind of feed different information. Mm. I often pick up the paper and read about someone who's supposed to be 45 and I think, God, they must be older than me. That <laughs> I always think it's nice to give you, tell people you're older than you are. And they, I think it was someone like, some f- famous Hollywood movie star, I can't remember her name, She was I saw her being interviewed on a, on a TV show in New York or somewhere and and they said, "How old would it be rude to ask how old you are?" And she said, "Yes, it would be very rude to ask how old, but I'm actually 72." Mm. And the whole audience gasped. Mm. And the, the interviewer said, "My God, you only look about 50." She said, "Well, I'm not really 72, but if I say 72, everyone says what you've just said." You know. <laughs> so I thought that's a really good thing, you know, thing to remember. Are you from Lancashire or something like that? Is that no, no, I'm from uh, from London. Are you? Yeah, all my family are from the East End. Now. You've got an accent. Now. I know, I know. But my dad got a job in Mansfield oh, really? in Nottingham. When I, and so when I was a baby, like a year old or something, we moved up there. I'm the only one in the family that speaks with a northern accent. <laughs> and the black sheep of the family. Right. Was music in your family? Show business as well. Well, no, my mum had a, had a boarding house. Right. She had digs, theatrical digs. Oh, right. So from before I can remember, we were surrounded by... In fact, loads and loads of big stars, because Mansfield was like a number two theatre or something mm. in the circuit. And um, so we had everyone from, you know, like the, the big old stars like Max Bygraves, Norman Wisdom, um, Rolf Harris, mm. and all the, you know, on the tours, all stayed with us, yeah. So I, I was surrounded by um, actors, singers, dancers, jugglers. When I was about um, nine, I, I did my first play um, because they needed a, a, a small boy um, to play this evacuee from London who moved up to the north mm. and they looked around some of the local people and none of the none of the kids that were going to speech and drama could do a Cockney accent but of course I could do it really well because mm. whenever I went down to visit my cousins they took the mickey out of me for speaking with it for saying bus instead of mm. bus so I learned to speak very quickly mm. with a London accent Did you ever consider doing anything else other than show business other than recovery? Well when I was at school I wanted to be a pro, pro rugby player um, I think rugby union or rugby league? Just, no, proper rugby, yeah. 
I wanted to play the All Blacks, to be honest, for represent England. But um, I think it's because I was a bit of a nut at, at school, you know, I, I used to. My my real name is is Bernard William Richard Jury, and they used to call me Wild Bill at school because I was a complete lunatic on the rugby pitch. It, it was only in the last kind of the last about two years when I was about 15, 16, 15, 16 when I was at school I got um, some kind of rheumatoid fibrosis or something I can't remember the name of it but it was a um, a complaint a sort of paralysis in, in the back mm. and I couldn't move my back or neck or anything for for a couple of years and I was in sick bay for a while mm. and I just was unfit when I came out but while I was in there I started listening to Radio Luxembourg and then I went to the local palais mm. one Wednesday evening when they had a, what they called a hop on, and it was a rock and roll band, little rock and roll band. And that's it. I was hooked, man. That's all I wanted to do. That's all I've ever done, I mean. You said that in the late 60s you thought that was it, your career was finished by then. What did you think you would go on and do after that, or did you have enough money then to retire? No, I mean, I, when I was about 17, I, I left school and left home, really, because I joined a band and we got a record deal and my father pretty well disowned me because he thought I was going to go on to university and all that he paid for me to have a private education um, but then it, within a year we had a record in the charts and he kind of then saw that it wasn't such a bad thing and came on board and he was brilliant and very supportive then he managed us for a while but it was at that time it was like the, the big stars in those days when I started we our, our kind of English pop stars were people like uh, Marty Wilde and Adam Faith and Cliff Richard and Joe Brown for me one of the best stars ever was Billy Fury and he was just tremendous and uh, the first tour I ever did was with Billy Fury and Joe Brown so I mean I, I got a real christening to rock and roll and at that time you were only supposed to have about two years life expectancy in the business it was pop singers disposable so what did you think you would do after that? I didn't ever want to do anything else. So I mean, towards the end of the sixties, I, 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 there wasn't any work around much because the, the the new sounds, the Beatles sounds, had come in and the hippies things had come in, and I was still kind of based in that early pop, brick pop, rock and roll stuff, you know, sixties. So I just got a, I bought myself a Gibson guitar, and I got a bass player and a drummer, mm. and, and an old Ford Zodiac executive, mm. and we just put all the gear in the back seat, and I used to do. We had a little, I had a little rock and roll trio, mm. the Shane Fenton rock and roll trio. Mm. And I did that for about a couple of years, and then I bumped into Peter Shelley, who was a writer and a producer mm. at Magnet, and the rest is history. Love Me, Love My Dog, wasn't that his Yeah, name? he wrote that for me. Oh, did he? Yeah, and he wrote um, G Baby for me. Oh, yeah, I remember that. But we said to him, this is, he played as the demo, and yeah. we said to him, this is crazy, you should release this, yeah. you know. But he, he, he was brilliant, he was such mm. a talented guy, but he, he, he didn't want to be a front man. I don't think he liked going out on stage. He loved the music and the industry, but... Did you write any of your own stuff? No, I did some... I wrote most of the flip sides, and I've written, yeah. helped write a couple of songs since. Oh, I remember that one on Michael Tudor about the farm. I couldn't believe it yeah. was you. Well, the original thing that Peter had was... It, basically, it was a real country. Mm. That's why, yeah, that's why G Baby and Love Me, Love My Dog, they were very country-flavoured mm. songs, and I think that he would have liked it to have gone that way, but... Cuckoo, we had Terry Britton playing guitar, mm. who after that wrote some amazing stuff. Yeah, he kind of gave it this slightly heavy feel. And even though Jealous Mind had a country ish lean, it was still mm. slightly heavy because of the guitar. And then Red Dress came out, and that was a quite a heavy track. 
do you wish you'd, you'd sort of become a megastar like David Bowie or people like that? And... In a way, it, it, it would be nice. I think everyone would like to think that they'd made it as big as someone else who's bigger than them. But to be honest, I, I'm not in the business or in the music business to be because of being a star. I'm in it because I love playing. I mean, I love going out onto a massive stage in a stadium, you know, with a mega PA system. And it's a fabulous feeling. It's like playing at Wembley, you know, or something. Um, but at the same time, I love getting up in a little pub with a couple of mates and just jamming, you know, for someone's party, someone's birthday or something, you know, and just playing any old song that comes into our mind. It's, it's being in a band I love. Although I've always been shoved out front because the singer gets noticed more, I think. I never feel like that. I always feel like I'm just in the band. And I think that's that's a nice way to be. Do you get bored playing the old hits, though, over and over again? No, no, no. It's like it's like the first time. It's like the first time. Oh, yeah, yeah. When the minute you start and you see people's faces light up and they start clapping and you know it's the, they, they know the song and everything, that's great. It's such a charge. I do listen to people sometimes when they say, oh, we're bored playing the same old stuff. Mm. On the other hand, you see, I don't go out, I'm not working every night, mm. you know, and doing the same old stuff every night. Mm. You know, we'll, we'll have a gap. I mean, between now and, and next May, mm. I mean, I'm just going to do a few gigs, a couple of one-nighters, that's all. Mm. The rest of the time, I'll be working in the studio on new songs, mm. keeping my fingers crossed we might be able to come up with something. Mm. You know, I found a great little producer. I've had a one or two in the last couple of weeks I had a couple of young kind of really hip producers come on mm. to see if I'd be interested I suppose it's since Tom has done this album and a couple of other people and I've done albums with Tom young yeah, yeah. yeah with young with young current people mm. they're, they're kind of looking for, for sort of for legends mm. to, to go in and produce you know and when you think about it I suppose all the fans that I've picked up since 1960 through the 70s through the 80s they've not died they're mm. still out there I sold mm. millions of singles but and, al- and albums but mm. well I mean but um, we just need product if we mm. had product and now they can get things played again it's, mm. it's, I'm, I'm, I'm just happy a few years ago there was a sort of you had a sort of image of a bit of a bible thumping reborn again Christian or whatever I mean was that a fair image or was that grossly exaggerated I've never changed you know I, I was a I went to a little church school called St. Peter's in Mansfield uh, as my infant school, and then I went on to another church school for my senior school at Sutherland in Newark, near Newark. And uh, so I was taught RE at school, like millions of other people were. And then I got an opportunity to, to co-present a television series, and no one in their right mind is going to turn that down in this, that, that? the Rock Gospel Show. Yeah. Yeah. And it was during that time at the, or the end of that that um, uh, Lisa and I got divorced mm. and I think that some journalists just latched onto it as mm. some kind of a over the top thing to say and mm. it would make it something to talk about in the article mm. and, and then ever since then of course it's been a cutting and it gets picked up on all the time I am a Christian I've always been a Christian and I suppose I'll die a Christian if I'd been born a Muslim I'd be a Muslim I'd die a Muslim unless something drastic happened and changed my ideas I just think it's one of those things that happened and it was a bit of journalism that, that kind of backfired on me through no fault of my own. I don't think there's anything wrong with being a Christian anyway. I mean, I don't, I don't have anything against Muslims or, you know. <laughs> so why should I have anything, anybody have anything against me? I think it's as simple as that, really. I think it's very simple, but people 
get very sensitive about mm. it. Do you think you've been given the credit you deserve? Well, crikey, yeah. I mean, uh, just to sell a few records and be still still in the business and be successful, really, uh, for so long. I mean, it's just it's mind-blowing. I mean, next year, well, come 20, year 2001, it'll be 40 years, 61 to... And every year, I've had a new surge of success. I mean... Well, are you going to plan anything for your 40th anniversary in the business? I don't know. I haven't done. I've never done these kind of 20, you know, 20th anniversaries, 30th anniversaries. I've never done things like that. Probably because someone else has done it just before me, and I think, well, it's been done now at no point. I don't know. I'll probably find that someone like Cliff will do his 50th anniversary the year before it's my 40th, and then I won't be able to do it because it'll have been done. <laughs> you already did that 20 years ago. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> How would you like to be remembered after you've gone? Um, I suppose... A bit of a rock and roller and not a bad bloke.